We've been moving through the book of 1 Corinthians, but we're going to take a break for the month of July and do something completely different. Um, We are going to work through the first couple chapters of Leviticus and look at the five Levitical offerings. And there's there's very much an intention here, okay? Um, What I've recognized in years of doing ministry and talking to people about the Bible is Leviticus is one of the primary derail spots in personal biblical reading, right? Genesis, you're tracking. Exodus is okay. Numbers, you've got a couple of senses, but you make it through by the skin of your teeth, and then you hit Leviticus, uh, and, and you just don't even know what to do with it. But it's worth remembering, before we even get started this morning, um, that the Old Testament was all the scriptures that the apostles who wrote the New Testament had. And when they say, thus says the Lord, what generally comes out of their mouth following is what was said in the Old Testament. Not only that, but we see in the book of Hebrews, as well as in uh, 1 Corinthians, we'll discover this later, that all of these things were pointing towards the coming of Jesus. And so God laid out this intricate priest manual in the book of Leviticus, intentionally getting them to go through the motions of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. And so when we look at how an ancient Israelite would have approached God in the tabernacle or in the temple, we are really reminding ourselves of how we approach God in Jesus Christ. So I'm very excited about this series. We're going to just look at the five offerings one week at a time. Um, This morning we'll be looking at the burnt offering, and so if you have a Bible, please open it up to Leviticus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one tucked in the back of a pew nearby that you are more than welcome to use. Can I just tell you offhandedly that I know some of you are not excited and that makes me excited. <laughs> Even in studying this book again, it's been, it's been eye-opening to, to realize how valuable this book is and to recognize, uh, by the way, it's been doing that for two days now. That, that honking is not new to me. I live right next door. Um, it, it's, been, it's been intriguing to recognize how valuable this book is and how easy it is to get lost in because we stop paying attention. And I know why we stop paying attention. It's because it's so tremendously foreign. One of the things I want you to think about through this series is how different their interaction when they went to the tabernacle was versus our service in the morning. Just, just as we go down the list, as we read the passage, pay attention to that. But here's the first place we go wrong in Leviticus, okay? We read it and we forget that it is, is set right in the narrative of what God has been doing so far. In fact, look at verse 1 for a second. It said, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. Now, literally that sentence says, and the Lord called, called Moses and spoke to him. How many books do you know that begin with and? See, what's happening in Leviticus, and if you keep reading it, you'll find more narrative portions where stuff happens. This conversation is happening in the midst of a space-time happening, right? It's, it's not just something that's been written down. It's, it's not a best-selling book on priestly behavior. It's, it's specifically part of the story God is telling. And if you start Leviticus here and forget that, you're already derailed, Okay? Now, for starters, here's here's what's happened in the Bible so far in in a very summary form, okay? God creates mankind for fellowship with him, and they enjoy that fellowship, right? We read about Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, okay? Whatever that means, clearly it means relationship. It means interaction. It means question and answer and conversation and love and all of these things, but it doesn't stay that way. 
What we find only a chapter later is that sin enters the picture and it breaks all of that apart. And so the garden becomes kind of this paradigm with what's missing in human life, and it's the way we talk about it now. Maybe you're familiar with the Joni Mitchell song that was made famous by Crosby, Stills, and Nash about the hippies, right? We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. They're expressing something that we've all recognized, that there was a time, that there was a place, that there was something different, and now if we look at human life, we can't talk about it accurately without talking about some form of alienation about recognizing some form of separation or, um, or rejection. And we recognize this in our own lives, don't we? That we're always looking for something, something that will validate us, something that will uh, prove acceptance. And when we don't get it in places, we keep looking. And even when we do get it, it seems to merely scratch the surface of whatever's wrong with humanity. What we want most is to be fully accepted and embraced. What, what that really is as it, at its deepest level is recognizing that something in our relationship with God himself has gone sideways. C.S. Lewis said that the road to home is paved with many inns along the way, but none of them are so good that we would forget they are not home. And that's the experience that we have, right? There are times in your life where you can look around and go, this is the good life. But there's always something scratching deeper deeper going, and yet, but still, however, there's something deeper, there's something missing. And so even there, when sin interrupts everything, when when the relationship is rent, when the story is, uh, you know, the crisis enters the story, God makes a promise there that he's going to do something about it. And we watch as that problem is not just Adam and Eve's problem, but Cain and Abel's problem and all of their descendants. And by the time we've gotten to chapter 5, we have death present in human life. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died over and over again. We have the contamination of sin as, as told in the story of the flood where every intention of the thoughts of mankind were always evil continuously. All of these things lay out until we get to Abraham and God promises Abraham that he's going to do a work in him and his descendants and him and his family and the people of Israel that will lead to fixing this. And one of the ways he does this is by being present with the people of Israel, right? That's what sets Israel apart from any other nation is that God dwells in their midst. The reason they have a tabernacle is because that's where the glory of God dwells. The reason they have a priesthood is to sustain and maintain that relationship between a very present God and a very sinful people. The reason they have the ceremonial codes and all of these laws is because God is present, okay? And so what happens in Exodus and Numbers is everything is laid out for God to dwell in the midst of his people. All the plans are given for the tabernacle. All of the priesthood are prepared. And then what happens at the very end of the book of Numbers, in fact, you can flip back a page and read it with me, is that the tabernacle is built. The place where God's presence would dwell is there. But there's a serious problem. Look at what it says in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out, for till the day that it was taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so notice what it says here. It says that God's presence comes on the tabernacle and not even Moses can enter in. Okay, now God has been present in different ways, settling on the mountain of Sinai and giving the law with, you know, I was going to say with much aplomb, but with lightning and, and authority and all of these things. And here, God dwells in the midst of his people and even Moses himself can't go through the front doors. One of the things that the author of, uh, of Exodus wants us to get here um, is, is the shock of that reality, right? One of the things that Leviticus seeks to teach us is, is twofold, okay? One, 
the difficulty of us as human beings relating with a holy God, and two, that God has laid out a means to deal with that difficulty. And so Moses is left standing outside the tent, and then, verse 1 of Leviticus 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meaning, saying, okay, and so here is the way into the tabernacle. Here is the way into the presence of God. The sacrificial system is ultimately answering the question, how can this alienation between us and God be fixed? How can we live with the God who the Bible calls a consuming fire? How can the great gap between us and him be restored? It's intriguing, and this is a study for another time, but it's intriguing to see the relationship between the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, and in the end of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. There's a trajectory that's being followed there. There's a consistency. The, even the measurements themselves all point in the same direction. But one of the great ways to see the drama of the Bible is how will it be that God can dwell with sinful man? And so what is given here in Leviticus 1 through 7 is the rules for the sacrifices. And there were five offerings um, that Israel was called to give. The first three have a few things in common. Okay, that's the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Each one of them, uh, it says repeatedly, we'll see this in the next few weeks, that it was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Also, each one of them uh, was offered freely, okay? And so we won't find here a schedule or a routine or an occasion. If this goes wrong, then do this. That's not how these offerings are. These are free will offerings. And then this, the last set of offerings, the fourth and the fifth, um, what we call the sin offering um, and the offering of, I'm trying to see what my ESV calls it, um, the guilt offering is, is what it's called in this Bible. These two offerings, it doesn't say a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord because they deal with when things go wrong. They deal with issues in the relationship. They deal with fixing what's broken. Um, and those two have specific reasons when they need to be brought. Okay? But ultimately, all five of these offerings together make up the sacrificial system for ancient Israel what worship looked like for them, what relationship with God looked like for them. And each one of them has its own unique aspects, and each one has overlap, and it's worth pointing out right here this morning that they were very rarely offered alone. So you didn't come on Monday and offer your burnt offering and then come on Wednesday to offer a peace offering. As you read about its usage throughout the Old Testament, what you find is the burnt offering and the grain offering are often together. And the burnt offering and the grain offering often precede the peace offering. And sometimes you begin with a sin offering and then a burnt offering. The, the reality here is broader than, than we might think about it. But when we get to the New Testament, it makes very clear that all of these things point towards, teach us about, explain the need for and what was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Probably the clearest place is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, by the way, is the most helpful New Testament book in reading the Pentateuch, in reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, what it is effectively is a sermon on how we have something new and better in Jesus Christ, even though the Old Testament always said that this is how it would turn out. In chapter 10, he says, opening in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, and so what it says here is, is twofold. It says that what we're reading in Leviticus was a shadow of the reality. 
And by the way, the author of Hebrews here is writing to people who were being drawn back to Judaism, who are going back to the sacrifices, who feel like they've left something behind in becoming Christians and walking away from Judaism. And he says, no, 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 no. That's like talking to a shadow instead of the person casting it. That's like having a relationship with, a, you know, with an effigy instead of the reality. And not only that, but he says that in doing this, in going through these motions, there wasn't the means for dealing with sins, but actually the reminder of those sins, a constant reminder of the difficulty and the danger of relating with God. Okay? So back in Leviticus chapter 1, let's read through this offering the burnt offering, and then we'll pray, and we'll take a look. Now, a word of warning. I'm just going to read through the entire thing. If you feel your eyes glazing over, start with this question. What does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with sin? What does this have to do with worship? Okay? As you, as you read through, see if you can start to guess what's going on here. So verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar, and wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained on the side of the altar, he shall remove its crop with its contents, and cast it beside the altar on the east side, in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray. God, in our day and age, it's easy to forget the full danger and reality of sin. It wasn't so easy in the day of the Israelites. It wasn't so easy when you had to go through this so regularly, when this was a constant part of your life, when blood flowed freely from the Temple Mount to forget the cost of these things. But we know, Lord, as heavy and as serious as that is, it's also the measure of what you've done in Jesus Christ. So I pray that as we look at it this morning, you would open our eyes to the reality of what we're looking for, of what we can never bring to the table, of what you offered in Jesus Christ, and of how we should respond. And we pray this in your name. Amen. I want to draw your attention, um, first, just in terms of structure, to the basic outline of this passage. After talking about a burnt offering, we see that there's options, right? You can bring it from the herd, in other words, a bull. You can bring it from the flock, in other words, uh, a uh, a ram or a goat, or you can bring it from the other flock, birds. Uh, it can be a, a pigeon or a turtle dove, okay? That's, that's the structure, and in each of those sections, he just walks through the process, but for the most part, outside of the fact that a bird is very different than a bull, uh, the process is pretty much the same, okay? The Second thing I want to draw your attention to is what it says about the need for an offering. Notice again in verse 
Three, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Do you hear that word acceptance? That's what the burnt offering is all about. About our need to find the end of that alienation. That need for peace to be made between us and God. For us to be fully and completely embraced by the God who is love. Okay? Like I said, even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you recognize this alienation. And like all of us, you've probably thrown all sorts of things at that deep and wide gap trying to fill it, trying to cover it up, trying to bridge it. But no matter how great life is, there is that, that longing. I heard a pastor put it this way. He talked about the Christmas afternoon blues. Right? That Christmas morning is this place of excitement and joy, and, and if you're part of a big family, it's for a whole lot more reasons than presents. It's just this great thing, and then when it all dies down, there's that same presence of the and yet, and the but still, and the how quickly it fades, and you know, it doesn't matter if you got every gift on your list, it doesn't matter if every gift you bought someone else was seen for what it was, a thoughtful expression of love, it doesn't matter how much you ate and how full you feel, there's this emptiness that just can't be scratched. What that really is, is seeking for a restoration between us and God, and that's what the burnt offering is about. Now, what makes the burnt offering unique against all the other offerings is that the whole animal in all of its parts, was consumed on the altar. And the smoke ascended to God, and it says here that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Some of the other sacrifices were eaten by the priests. The peace offering was actually eaten in celebration with the offerer. But this one was wholly and completely consumed before the Lord. Now, what's focused on as well, even in the name, the burnt offering, the, the word here to burn on the altar is a unique word. It's not used in other places except for the sacrifices. The idea seems to be one of ascension. It has to do with the fact that the offering is consumed and the smoke ascends. Okay, and so to some degree, what this offering answers is what it asks in Psalm 15 verse 1. How shall a man ascend the mountain of the Lord? How shall someone enter into the presence of God? What is required to be in relationship with the God who is a consuming fire? And so by the end of this sacrifice, what we have is the smoke ascending and in some sense, you ascending with it into the presence of God. That brokenness is bridged, okay? That issue is restored, now, the next thing I want us to notice this morning is the why behind the possibilities here. If he brings a bull, if he brings a ram or a goat, if he brings a pigeon or a turtle dove, why? Well, clearly, the recognition here is one that is economic. In fact, we know that uh, when Jesus was uh, brought forward for his dedication offering, which is a burnt offering, in the book of Luke, his parents came with two turtle doves. They brought the offering of the poor because they couldn't bring any more. If you were an Israelite and you had bulls to offer, then you bring a bull. If you didn't have bulls, then you could bring a goat. And even if you were very poor, you could just catch a bird and bring a bird. One of the things that's striking about this offering is this reality uh, that it's something God desires to make room for everybody. God is not a God of privilege. He's not a God who selects those against others, who sees things as um, setting some sort of economic bar. And so it's built into the system that anyone can come, that anyone can have access, that anyone can enter into the presence of God. And one of the things that you can't escape in the book of Leviticus is that the only way to enter in is the prescribed way. And so it's important to recognize the detail here, just recognizing that, that God lays out the path here, but nonetheless, he does so broadly. Now, in converse to that, clearly, 
I think we can read this and recognize that if you're a man who owns herds and herds of bulls, who would be of the wealthy elite of Israel, and you show up with a pigeon, you've probably misunderstood what's supposed to happen here, right? The idea is both a tension between all can come, and whoever comes, it must be costly. Costly for them. We have a tendency to weigh costs only in the, you know, the market value, and so we would put a bull above a turtle dove. But Jesus himself, watching people give at the temple, saw a woman who was so poor that she only gave two leptas. In, in our day and age, we're talking about less than a penny in gift, and he said she's given more than all the rest because they gave out of their abundance, but she gave all she had. And so we can hold these two things in tension very comfortably and see that this offering was an offering that anyone could bring, but it was also a costly offering. It was one that was supposed to be expensive. In fact, notice here that it says that the offering was to be a male without blemish. Now, that requirement that the offering was male is not existing in some of the other offerings. In fact, in some cases, we'll see a female was required. And so we have to ask the question, why a male here? And the reason seems to be, once again, about cost, okay? When you're a shepherd, when you have herds and flocks and these types of things, the primary reason you have it in Israel is not for meat. Meat was something you ate on rare occasions. Meat was something that you did occasionally, but what you really wanted from your flocks and from your herds was wool and milk, okay, and these types of things. And even... um, even in our times where, where breeding is something that we pay attention to, you keep the male population small and the female population larger. That was true in Israel's day as well. You'd have lots of females, but you would have the culling when they were young, and you'd weed out a lot of the males. Okay? Now just recognize what that does to the value of the few males you have. It means you have to wait until another one comes around. Okay? And so there were many females in any Israelis, uh, Israelites herd, but there was only a few males, and it's of the males that they're supposed to give. And so the idea here is of cost. We see that idea of cost even in the fact that the sacrifice is completely consumed. Right? There's no return value. There's no share in this. Unlike the grain offering where there's a memorial portion given and the rest is given to the priest or the peace offering where, as I said earlier, part of the meat is offered to the Lord and the other part is consumed by the family, this was completely and wholly consumed on the altar. The recognition here to the Jew in the times of the Old Testament, and to us today is the same. It's the fact that the only way to have a relationship with God is inherently holistic. It has to be the offering of the all. It has to be completely consumed. It has to be fully given over. And I recognize, even as I say it, there's an uncomfortableness in that because what we want so often with God is partial. It's a piece. We want a piece, whatever that missing piece is, to be fulfilled, but we still want our independence over here. We still want our identity apart from these things. We want religion to be a part of our life, but this offering itself is the first and most common offering. The burnt offering, by the way, was offered twice by the priests every day in the morning and in the evening. This was the most common offering, the most often brought, the one that's involved in so many of Israel's festivals. And the idea over and over again is complete, it's whole, it's all. The idea we see here is of a full surrender, as represented in the animal. There is a direct juxtaposition between being accepted before the Lord and giving all of yourself. If I can put things simply, that's actually just built into the definition of who God is. If God is God and we are not, then what it looks like to be in relationship with God is to recognize that we belong to him, that we were created by him for his purposes, and the Bible makes it specific for his glory, and that that's what we were built for. That's what we were designed to do. That's why when we get to Isaiah 53 and it talks about what's wrong and what the Messiah will do to fix it, it says that we have each gone our own way, right? 
the alienation we feel from God is not simply him pressing down, you know, upon us at a distance to keep us at a distance. It's us going our own way. C.S. Lewis famously said that what Jesus does in the cross is firmly plant a flag in all of our hearts, in the rebel kingdom of our hearts, and say, this belongs to me. And so we have to recognize here that the way into God's presence is a full-blown surrender. It's not an addition in life. It's not a modification. It's not some sort of a religious layer that we just lay over the top. It's all on the altar. But there's a problem. There's a serious problem in this offering, and that's when we do that, that offering is inherently flawed. Notice what it says here. It says that they have to offer a male without blemish. This word here for without blemish just means complete. It means perfect. Okay. And so when a ram or a bull was brought, the priests would intensely go over it to make sure that it had no birthmarks, no bruises, no broken bones, no signs of disease or decay. They would look for anything that would disqualify it. And obviously, you know where we're going. The, the cow is going to lose its life, right? The ram is going to be put to death. The bird is going to be bled out, broken neck, and torn in half. This reality here is important. But it had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect. Now, this is more than just God should get the best. It's more than just an assessment of value, Okay. This is where the symbolism comes to be its strongest because here's the tension that's happening. Who is it that wants to ascend into the presence of the Lord? It's the offerer. Who is it that needs to be perfect? It's the offering. Okay, now this this comes out more clear as we see what happens next. It says that after he's accepted, he's brought forward, and then notice this, verse 4, he shall lay his hand who? Who here? Who's the he? There's two people that we're talking about here. There's the priest and the offerer. This is the offerer, okay? So the man who's brought this lamb from his own flock, the man who's made sure that he's blameless and has, you know, um, fulfilled the inspection, that man shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted to him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, verse 5, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood. Okay, so you've got to get the picture here. The picture here is that the bull is led to the side of the altar and that the man who brought it would lay his hand on his head. And the word here is very strong. It doesn't mean to just touch or to set your hand on. It means to press on with full force. Okay, Lay his hand upon the head and then he would slit its throat. And the priest would be there with a bull catching all of the blood. Now just think about that for a second. I didn't do the research because I try and not Google things that will show up weird later, but I don't know how much blood a bull contains, but it's a lot of blood, right? I mean, the point is here that, that what just happens here is not just mystical and liturgical. It's not just religious. It's incredibly and tremendously blind, uh, uh, violent. And, and not only that, but it's, it's surprisingly dirty as this blood is poured out and it's caught in a bowl and then it's splashed around the altar now this happens how many times over the course of a day Josephus tells us in the high festivals the three festivals that uh, all Jewish males over the age of 13 were to attend every year that blood would flow out of the temple like a river as people brought their offerings because the only place to offer these offerings was Jerusalem And so people who lived away would kind of build up these offerings and then take them all and offer them. And so when the city would swell into the millions during the festivals and the priests would go into high gear and overtime to take care of these sacrifices, there was blood everywhere. Now, recognize another thing that we don't think think about. We're so removed from the death of animals in our culture, right? You may eat a hamburger, but you never have to kill the cow. You may have chicken nuggets, but you've never broken the neck of a chicken. That wasn't an option for for the Jews. When they brought their offerings, they were the butcher. 
And what about this laying on of the hand? Notice he doesn't say he will hold, you know, the rope tightly or something like that. This is not just to keep the guy still. When I was a kid, I grew up in Yakima, so farms are are prevalent there. Uh, And I remember being woken up by my father's, uh, excuse me, by my friend's father at 6 a.m. And he's like, get up, we're going to do a job today. And he took us to a farm where they were castrating and branding young calves. And it was one of these things that, you know, they have lots of easier ways to do it, but they just want this rite of passage for young boys. And so we were of many kids there, and our job was to grab these calves and wrestle them to the ground and then hold them down while they were castrated and, and uh, um, branded. It is not fun. For, for one, a, a baby calf is as big as a 10-year-old boy. And so it's, it's surprisingly scary to just bum rush a cow and try and wrestle it to the ground. But once you get it down there, the way that they respond to both of those actions is not happiness, right? They don't just, you know, calmly take what's coming to them. And not only that, but as they're being branded, you get the smell of burning flesh and it's right there, right next to you. You know, if you reach out with your arm, you're going to burn. And the smoke's just flooding into your nostrils. It is the least fun thing I've ever done. But this isn't just about, you know, holding, pinning the cow to the ground. It's something else, okay? What this is in this, in this method of laying the hand on is a recognition of substitution. It's a recognition of the fact that this animal is so innocent, it's actually spotless, right? So innocent, it actually has no flaws or defects whatsoever, The hand is laid, and then the neck is slit, and the blood spills out. The idea here is of substitution. We want to enter into the presence of God, but we can't because we're flawed. And for us, as the Bible repeats over and over again in the Old Testament, to be in the presence of God as sinful humanity is death. And so in this substitution, an innocent animal, and if I've got any PETA people here, any vegans you should feel this way, right? That is part of the scenario here. This animal does not deserve what's coming to him. And all I ask this morning is that you use that and flip it around to recognize what sin does because that's what this is about. That's what made this necessary. The option here to enter into the presence of God requires not only a full offering, a complete offering, but it requires a sinless offering. We can't be that. And so death is required. This is how the Old Testament says it multiple times. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Notice it uses the word atonement. Did you see that in verse uh, 4? It says at the end there, accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now atonement is this word that flows through both Testaments. And it's a sticky one to nail down. But most likely, it's rooted in a similar word that we translate ransom. Okay? It shall be a ransom for him. It shall make ransom for him is the idea here. And even there, we need to modify because when we think of ransom, we're missing a couple of components. When you study it deeply, this is what you find out. Okay? I'll give you an example. If, if your cow gets out and gores somebody else, It's your fault that that person has been injured or has died. But according to the Old Testament law, the family of the injured or the dead can provide a ransom for you, meaning that they can set a lesser cost than your own life, right? Because, Because that's what you've done. You've taken somebody's life. A lesser cost that you can pay to spare your own. Okay? So the idea of ransom doesn't have to do with kidnapping and criminals. It has to do with the fact that you are guilty and deserving of death and some sort of lesser offering has been provided at the choice of the one you've offended so that your guilt can be dealt with and the relationship can be restored. Okay? Now this happens with families uh, in the small, but it's also the reality in the large with God. That's what this is. It's not just that the cow or the ram or the bird doesn't deserve to die. It's that it it can't even, it's not even sufficient. Okay? 
And then it says that the, the blood was thrown against the sides of the altar, and this is consistent. In, in any of the offerings, whether it's a bull or a ram or a bird, the blood was poured out on the side of the altar, all of it. Later in Leviticus, it tells us why, and it explains that the life is in the blood. In other words, there's nothing that we associate more with life than blood, and there's nothing we associate more with the spilling the blood than death. Okay? It's this recognition here that it costs an entire life. In fact, notice that he doesn't just say, take a couple of ounces, you know, and then bandage up the cow and send it its way. It's all the blood. It's death. So at that point, the priest starts to stoke the fire, and the man starts to butcher the animal. And it says that he flays them into two pieces, and then he cuts apart the parts. He takes out the organs, and he washes them, and then he skins it. And the skin is the only thing that doesn't go into the fire. The rest of the animal in its entirety goes there, and then it burns completely through, okay? Every once in a while, I hear a pastor talk about this, like the sweet smell of barbecue, but that's only true for a while, right? What happens here is, is the whole way through the burning process till there's nothing left, okay? And then as it says here that the, the smoke, um, look at verse... 9 says but its entrails and legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord and so it burns through as a pleasing aroma to the Lord what this is saying here is I accept you right it's restored did you know that after the flood the offering that Noah offers is a burnt offering and that we see the same thing there in fact, it's worth looking at. Go ahead and look at Genesis. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. So, the flood has subsided. Noah gets off the ark. This is the first thing he does. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, notice what he says there. He says, there will not be another flood. There will not be something like this again, even though people haven't changed. Right? Do you see that? In fact, it's a direct reference to what it says in Genesis chapter 6 when it says, every intention of the thoughts of mankind was always evil continuously. That doesn't change, but God's response to that behavior does. Why? Because of the pleasing aroma, because of sacrifice. I'll give you another example. Look at the book of Job. We sometimes forget this because of the way the Bible lays out, but the book of Job is one of the more ancient um, stories in the Old Testament. Some people believe it actually would take place during the history of the book of Genesis. And so it predates, predates the giving of the law. But look at Job's behavior here in verse 5 of chapter, uh, chapter 1. It says here, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. This is talking about his children. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continuously. And so Job is constantly offering burnt offerings on his children's behalf because he doesn't know what their behavior is like. At the end of the book of Job, we see a similar thing. Um, God speaking in the end, all the way in the last chapter here, which is chapter 42, I believe. So, just in way of context... Job loses everything. There's more going on than it looks like. Job's trying to make sense of it, and his friends are all convinced that it's his fault. And in doing so, they actually defame God and what God's actually doing. And so here, God rebukes these friends. 
This is what it says in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go up to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me of what is right as my servant Job has. Okay, well, let's finish verse 9 because it is helpful. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Okay, and so this idea of substitution is the recognize, uh, recognition that the wages of sin, as Paul says in Romans, is death. That what we deserve, that the consequence of it, that the great offense of human behavior demands the punishment of a holy God. I was reading a book recently that I found very helpful, and it was talking about this idea of propitiation. And I know that's not a word that we use very often outside of biblical circles. In fact, there's even some, uh, some biblical scholars that are trying to remove it from there. But the word originally comes from uh, a Greek culture that saw some sacrifices as appeasing the wrath of God. And you add that to a bloody sacrifice, and it seems so pagan, it seems so... Um, low and ancient and uncivilized in these types of things. However, this is something that I found helpful. This book that I was reading points out that the idea is not appeasing God's hatred, but his anger. And that distinction is really important. We assume that wrath can only be something that's had in hatred, but you won't find that in the pages of Scripture. What you'll find constantly is that God loves humanity, and that's part of what makes sin so awful, because sin inherently destroys humanity. It destroys you, and it destroys other people. Every piece of sin is an attack against humanity, an attack against the God who is love. And God justly is, is uh, adamantly opposed, stands completely in resistance to sin. So the question then becomes, how can we possibly live? How can we possibly enter into a relationship with God? This is the sacrifice. This is the substitution. This is atonement. This is the need and this is the necessity. But the author of Hebrews already told us that these things are merely a shadow. In fact, he tells us that God patiently endured all of the sins of his people in Israel awaiting something that could actually deal with it because the blood of boats, uh, bulls and goats cannot deal with sin. If you can put the two parts together, this idea of a consecration, this idea of holy surrender to God, and this idea of sacrifice, if you can keep them both in mind, what we find in Jesus Christ is a man who in his 30s goes to be baptized by John, and then as he comes out of the water, a voice speaks from heaven and says what? This is my beloved son, and him I am well pleased. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this. He says, I always do the things that please the Father. In fact, when we look back at Hebrews 10, it takes Psalm 40 as being kind of the life text, the life verse, if you will, of Jesus and so he says here, right where we stopped reading in Hebrews chapter 10. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared before me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. When he says above, verse 8, you have neither desired nor take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. And so what it's saying here is that the Psalms itself recognize that the sacrifices couldn't do what they pointed towards. And that God would send Jesus who his body would be the sacrifice. And not just as it hung on the cross of Calvary, but as it lived out its human life in perfect and complete consecration 
to him. Jesus was accepted not just as a sacrifice, but as a man, living perfectly in unbroken communion with God. In one passage in the Gospel of John, he says, I only do the things the Father shows me, in complete obedience and submission to God. This was the reality of Jesus' life. The life that human beings were meant to live, Jesus lives perfectly in complete communion with God, but he experiences the full and full extent of our alienation in the cross. When the Bible talks about enmity between God and man, there are some scholars that will try and tell you that's one directional enmity, that we're the enemies of God, but he'd never be the enemies of us. But in the cross of Christ, there's no enmity in Jesus. And it says in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the Lord Same word here for a pleasing aroma. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Jesus became the enemy of God by taking our enmity upon his shoulders. This is what the cross of Christ is. It's the final epitome, both of consecration, that he obediently, it says in the book of Philippians, became a servant and went and obeyed even to the point of death, even the death on a cross. But it's also the epitome of sacrifice, of the innocent for the non-innocent. So the question for us this morning becomes, have you rested your hand firmly upon the head of Christ? Have you recognized the fact that his death was your death? The one that you deserved. That as you participated in the acts that put him on that cross, he was also standing in your stead. You see, this is the reason why works and efforts and our own righteousness constantly fall short because sin must be dealt with. And none of us can come to God and say, I have come to do your will, O God. None of us can say with confidence that I am without spot or blemish, that I am without mark, that I am fully consecrated to you, that you've put me on this altar, Lord, and I will stay here until the end. But Jesus did fully and completely on your behalf. And when we talk about salvation by faith, it's the exact same thing. It's putting our trust, leaning our weight, laying our head upon Jesus as a substitution for us, as the one who makes atonement, as the one who pays the price of ransom. But don't forget that the goal of this whole thing is consecration. You see, the idea here is not just that Jesus absolves you from that relationship with God, makes it so you can avoid him, pays the bills so God leaves you alone. The whole goal here is to enter into the presence of God. And that's why, that's why when the New Testament authors look back on this, they take this same language of the burnt offering and they say that this is the Christian life. You see, maybe no book makes more clear what Jesus has done for us than the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 verse 25 uses that word I mentioned earlier, that Jesus has become propitiation for us so that God might both be just meaning that he rightly deals with sin, and the justifier of the ungodly, meaning that he doesn't destroy us on behalf of our sin. And he lays this all out on the table, but when he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, he says these words, I beg you, therefore, brethren, because of God's mercies, because God not only provided what needed to take place and told us what was required of a sacrifice, but himself became the sacrifice. That's the mercies of God. I beg you, therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God, that you offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable act of worship. You see, there is a twofold reason why the sacrifices are not part of our normal participation, right? Not part of our normal life. There's a reason why this church is so much cleaner. You know, the ceiling is not stained with smoke and the carpets are not stained with blood. The reasons twofold are simply this, that Jesus' sacrifice was complete and sufficient. And it's been taken care of. So as the author of Hebrews points out, we never need another. We never need to go back and do again. 
but it also opens the way to a relationship with God, restores communion with God, makes atonement for us so that we can dwell in the presence of God. And so the reasonable act of worship, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, no longer needing to die, but that same life of Jesus. And, of course, it recognizes the fact that we'll continue to fall short. The Israelite knew that, too. They knew that the epitome of the burnt offering would always point to the fact that they needed something on their behalf, but they aspired to ascend the mountain. They aspired to walk into the tabernacle. They aspired to dwell with a living and loving holy God. This is why, as we've been seeing in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, it doesn't make any sense to continue in sin. It doesn't make any sense to sit in the mire of your terrible behavior and say, this is fine, I'm forgiven. No, the the entire reason Jesus came was not merely to take care of hell, but to press us into the presence of God to restore life to what it was supposed to be. In God, sorry, in Jesus, God was well pleased. In Jesus and his sacrifice, God was well pleased with us. And that acceptance that you're looking for, it can be rightly applied to you. Those words that God spoke from heaven of Jesus, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, those now apply to you. That separation is broken down and we may still feel it on occasion and the distance is still real, but eventually that will be completely sewn up. It will be completely removed and that's why what happens in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation is that Jesus and God himself dwell in the midst of his people. And there's no sacrifices and there's no curtain to, defi- you know, to, to separate us from the Holy of Holies. In fact, if you look at the vision of heaven in the book of Revelation, the Holy of Holies has become the New Jerusalem. It's the same strange cubicle dimensions. Have you ever read the last few chapters about Jerusalem and it's this many cubits high and this many cubits long and you've tried to think of what a city would look like as a cube? But it's emphasizing that it has become the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells and yet now people dwell with him. It's not like Israel living in danger and at a, at a closer distance maybe, but still a distance from God. It's the restoration of things as they were meant to be. It's back to the garden. Let's pray. Father, we... We want to recognize these truths this morning that as we approach you in worship, just merely to sing, as we approach you in our prayers, as we approach you in our devotions and in the living of our life, we recognize that you are worth and demand our all and that we haven't measured up, that we currently don't measure up, that there are still strongholds of rebellion in us holding out where we want to be king instead of you. And so we recognize the tension in our hearts between our greatest desire and these other desires, between our greatest prayer and these selfish, idolatrous prayers we pray quietly off to the side. We just want to firmly place our hand upon the head of Christ this morning and recognize that he has done what we could not. And because he's done it, we can enter in, as it says in the book of Romans, Romans, we can boldly enter the throne of grace. We have access to the Father. The veil between the holy place and the holy of holies has been torn in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would press into that, that we have been sanctified in the death of Christ, as the author of Hebrews said, and that we would walk out and live in that sanctification. That we would celebrate the Passover with this lamb whose blood meant that death passes over us and we feast on him, but we would have that feast with unleavened bread. I pray, Lord, we would recognize that the good life 
The right life, the true life, is a life wholly given over to the Lord. And that we would offer ourselves as living sacrifices because of your mercies. Because you made clear the problem, because you laid out a pattern of the solution, and then you became that solution yourself. I pray, Lord, that this morning we would fulfill the words of the hymn, On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Thank you for making atonement for us, for making propitiation, for redeeming us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who came and lived the perfect life we could not live, and died the death that we deserve, so that we might be the righteousness of God, so that we might be free from our sins, so that we might experience the life of resurrection and enjoy a relationship with you. We pray in his name. Amen. As we respond this morning, we have communion set up. If you're a believer, please feel free on your own time to come forward and partake and remember what Christ has done. And take it as well as an, as an occasion to consecrate yourself again. We don't need the sacrifice anymore, but we still need the reminders. We still need to not just uh, you know, offer once for all ourselves, but continuously climb back on the altar. Let's respond.